Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Today I'm chatting with Benjamin Williams, the co-founder of the Diversity Lounge at PAX and also the co-founder of Queer Geek. Hello, Benjamin. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you today? Not too bad. I understand it's been unseasonably warm in the Seattle area this summer. Yay, global warming. Yay, climate change. Or something like that. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I, I wish I had more opportunities to experience it myself. Unfortunately, I... Would like to be going to PAX Prime this year. I'm not. It's just hard to justify the trip across the country when I have PAX East in my own backyard right here in Boston. Oh, it's almost as if that was their strategy when they planned PAX East, eh? What were they thinking? (laughs) Uh, The idea should be to get me so addicted that I want to go to all of them. Got to catch them all. Oh, there are people that do that. Trust me. I I believe it. Yeah. Uh, But you've been going to PAX Prime, what, the event's like 12 years old now or something? You've been going every year? No, I well, so I only moved to Seattle in 2006, and I believe it Prime started even a little bit before then. Um, we, st- uh, my husband and I, started attending in 2008, and then we skipped the uh, swine flu year, luckily. Um, but otherwise, we're we've been regular attendees since about 2008. And have you been to all the PAX East? No, in fact, I only had the privilege of going to PAX East once I started working on the Diversity Lounge. So I've been to two of them so far, and they are. It's very, it's very different experience. It's very interesting to see the different flavors of packs depending on just sort of like, it, I find that it has very little to do with the attendees because the attendees are, I think, very similar all around. It's mostly just sort of the, the convention space shapes the feeling of, of the show and it, it gives it a whole different flavor. So it's interesting to, to see in all the different locations. I can imagine the very first PAX East was held at a different location, and every year since then has been dramatically different from the first. Oh yeah, it wasn't always held in that big convention center? No, the very first year is held in the Heinz Convention Center, which via public transit is much more accessible and has a lot more places to eat and stay in the area, but the convention center itself is much smaller. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a lot about PAXIs, but before we get to that, I want to establish some of your other credentials, which is the co-founder of Queer Geek, a nonprofit in the Seattle area. Can you tell us a bit about that group's mission? Sure. Um, I started Queer Geek with um, some other local folk um, with the idea that um, basically I, I was doing some work in the area to sort of like get the community together and sort of build sort of a social base. And I found that there were other people who were also doing the same work, but just in different arenas or in different ways. Like, so I was doing a float in our pride parade. Um, and then I knew someone who was doing like weekly game nights. And then, then there was another person who was doing um, a big party every time packs uh, happened in town. And it was just like, I wanted us to, you know, I wanted us to justice league it up together and sort of make a big make a big to do of it. But I, I mean, honestly, the idea was that. And granted, this was I mean, it was a while ago, but it wasn't forever ago. Um, I guess it was like 2011, maybe. But it, even in the short time since then, I feel like there's been a very big change in the gaming industry because at the time there was very little identity for like queer gamers. Um, I mean, there, yeah, there were some Reddit groups and there was, um, there was like gaygamer.net and there was, 
there were these people who had been around for a while doing sort of the groundwork, but there wasn't, you know, they just didn't feel like a very strong community or a strong identity as a queer gamer. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to, one, improve things uh, in gaming for queer people, um, both in the media representations and in the um, sort of the community interaction, things like that. And I knew that the best way to sort of improve things was visibility. I mean, this this is sort of the cornerstone of queer politics for decades is if you make yourself visible and you make yourself known to people, then it's only a matter of time before they accept you um, because it's very difficult for them to um, to hate you or fear you or dislike you if you just get to know them. Right. And then once you get to know them, they they realize like, oh, hey, you're a person and you're just like me in a lot of ways. And so it's very difficult for me to discriminate against you because I have empathy for you now. Um, so that, that was sort of the whole idea um, behind queer geek was to bring queer identified geek folk together and build a community for those people. And then once the community sort of was established, it would then become visible by being a community and that visibility would promote dialogue, and that dialogue would eventually lead to positive change. Um, so that was sort of the the impetus behind it. Um, I was actually, I don't know if um, you know, I was also one of the co-founders of GamerX uh, when that first started up, too. Yes, that's right. We had event organizer Matt Kahn on the very first episode of this podcast, in fact. As far as Queer Geek goes, you organize events you've mentioned like around other events like packs or parades but year-round what sort of activities does queer geek organize um well it's mostly it's a, it's primarily a social group you know so there are um it's like meetups I, I mean it's sort of like any other regional social group where you have meetups for various activities whether it's gaming or like a movie premiere or like whatever if there's a convention in town um, parties around those conventions. It's it's just various different social meetups throughout the year. And then, as you say, also the sort of event-specific activities to either be visible or to attract um, new members or get the word out that we, we exist. I know you and I are both mutual friends with Tifa Robles, who's also in the Seattle area, who founded yes. the Lady Planeswalker Society, right. which is primarily for a uh, women-friendly magic the gathering space mm -hmm. so is queer geek sort of the same thing but for a different demographic um yes though i think that we have sort of a broader mission than ladies planeswalker society i mean ladies planeswalker society i believe is primarily a a play group, right? Like they get together and they play magic and that's pretty much all they do, which there's nothing wrong with that. And we do plenty of that too. Um, but then we also, we also have, you know, sort of the, um, the political action that we do uh, or have done and things like that. So very similar. Yes. But I think that we try and do more. Um, I'm not sure if we're always successful, but um, it, it's, it's similar, but different at the same time. 
So this leads me into a question about your PAX East 2014 panel, which is how I first became acquainted with you. The group, or the panel was called Creating Diversity Playgroups, and mm-hmm. as I understand it, you're reprising that panel next month at PAX Prime 2015, correct? Actually, that's Tifa's panel. She just invited me to be on it. Oh, I'm sorry. I, cer- I, I certainly do want to give credit where it's due, but uh, you are nonetheless appearing on the same panel. Um, I think so. <laughs> Check my email <laughs> and keep uh, keep up with with my schedule. But um, yeah, yeah, that that panel is definitely one that I've been involved with before and would be happy to be involved in again. Excellent. Yeah, it was a great panel. I really enjoyed it the last time I attended it. Uh, it talked about the Lady Plains Walker Society that Tifa founded, and similarly here on Polygamer, I previously interviewed Keisha Howard, who in Chicago founded the Sugar Gamers. Uh, and mm. I, I've interviewed Matt Kahn from GamerX, whom you know, about the LGBT community. So it is the name of the panel was Creating Diversity Playgroups. So from these examples I gave, is the definition of a diversity playgroup a safe space for a marginalized demographic? Um, the very short answer is yes, but there's a much more complicated answer, which is that um, when you start talking about safe spaces... Um, that's one of those words and phrases that everyone has a different idea of what you mean by that. Like, for example, my day job is in uh, as at the University of Washington in academia, and in academia, what you call a safe space is very different than what someone might consider a quote-unquote safe space like at a convention or at a bar or something like that. Um, I was actually having a really great conversation about this very topic um, with my best friend, Zan, who is the owner of Northwest Press, a queer comic book company, um, talking about the different ideas of what it means to have a safe space. Because um, at least for queer people, which is the demographic I can speak um, most readily to, if you think about like gay bars back in the day, right? Um, gay bars were a place where you could go that you knew that pretty much everyone there was going to be gay or queer or trans or like they were going to be part of your part of your community right um and you would go there not only to meet people who were like you and sort of have that that feeling of community but also you would go there because if you wanted to hit on someone you knew that they weren't going to beat the crap out of you because they the, in all likelihood they themselves were gay or you know, it is understood this space is de- is designated as queer space, and so if someone is engaging in queer activity, like, that's normalized in that space, right? But would I describe gay bars as, as a safe space, like, just in general? Like, absolutely not, you know? Like, there's just, I mean, they're great and for what for what they are, but I don't know if I'd call them a safe space, right? They're certainly not safe for everyone. They're not necessarily always safe for, for queer people. Um, there's all sorts of vices and problems that you can run into in places like that. Um, so, so when we're talking about safe spaces, I think you just have to be very clear about what you mean by that. So, for example, when talking about these playgroups, um, like, like with Tifa, with the Lady Planeswalker Society, it is a common experience for women playing magic, one of which, if you go to the, you know, if you go to just your average comic book store or gaming store um or if you go to any of the um i I forget what they if they're like called professional play but the tournaments when you go to the tournaments not that many women there 
and you can talk about the history of well, why aren't there that many women, things like that. But what it comes down to is that women historically have experienced misogyny and discrimination in these spaces. And so Tifa created Ladies Planeswalker to have a place where women could come and play magic and not have to worry about experiencing misogyny and discrimination because they're a woman, just like gay bars existed so that you could go and not have to worry about being gay bashed. Right. But so in those, in those senses, yes, they are safe spaces for a particular demographic. But I think that when you use the, the phrase safe space, suddenly it's a, there's an expectation that every single demographic from all walks of life and all places are, can be expected for it to be a safe space for them too. And while that is a great ideal to work towards, it's something that is almost always outside of the purview goal and expertise of, I mean, anyone putting on something like that, right? Like you can't control everyone. And so you can't say you will not experience any sort of discomfort, discrimination, or ignorance in this space of any kind whatsoever, because you can't control all the people that are there, right? You can only say, this is the goal of this space. Is that, is that, does that make sense? Do you get what I'm driving at there? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. So I say all this just to say that, um, cause this came up with the diversity lounge when we first were putting it out there that it was going to exist is, um, I made the mistake of referring to it as a safe space. Um, and people, people misinterpreted that. I think I, they were like, well, why isn't the whole con a safe space? It's like, well, it is actually the whole, all of PAX theoretically is a safe space because they have very stringent, like anti-harassment, like policies in place, policies and procedures. If someone experiences it, like they, they jump on it real fast and take care of it. They don't have, they have the anti-booth babe policy. It's like they, they have all of these policies and procedures in place to make the entire show safe. Right. But at the same time, there are people who, didn't feel like that they were necessarily the audience for PAX, right? So as a queer person going to PAX, you can sort of feel a little bit like an interloper, not because Robert Koo has like put dude bro signs up all over, but because it's like, you just know that video games aren't made for you. They're made typically for, you know, straight white guys. Um, and so you, you sort of feel a little bit like an interloper. And so the idea of the lounge was like, well, we're going to create a space sort of like a gay bar within the idea that like, well, if you come to this place, you know that you will find people like you. And so you can have that sense of belonging and community that the average person who comes to PAX has just by walking in the door. You can have that by coming to the lounge and seeing like you're not the only queer person here. You're not the only trans person here. You're not the only person of color here. This is a place where you can come and meet other people like that. And if you wish, you know, socialize with them and make new friends and go on and learn about things happening both at the show and in the gaming industry that caters to those people. And so what I should have said instead of safe space within the con is more like safer, like more safe or, you know, or just like, you know, or just left as like, it's a lounge. It's a place for you to come and meet people. That's all it is. You know what I mean? It was interesting to hear you compare the diversity lounge to a gay bar because you had said that gay bars can be problematic. What do you mean by that? 
Well, you had said that they were great in their day, but they're not necessarily safe for anybody, for everybody, and they certainly have their vices. Sure, but what I, the reason that I compared the lounge to that was just the idea of a gay bar is a type of space that is similar to other spaces, so other bars, but they have a specific audience that they serve. Just like a sports bar is a specialty kind of bar or a wine bar or whatever like that. It's serving a particular audience and it's calling out that it's serving that particular audience. And that was the goal of the diversity lounge was that it was like, hey, we know you're here at PAX and we know that you have interests that go beyond or are in addition to just sort of the average stuff that you're going to run into on the floor. So here's a place for you to come and learn about those interests that might be specific to you and to meet other people who share your interests and background. Gotcha. Thank you for explaining that. I didn't mean to try to catch you in your own terminology. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) No, no, no. It's certainly not that. I've never thought about the diversity lounge in term of gay bars. To be honest, I haven't given much thought to gay bars in almost any context, for better or for worse, and I just wanted to make sure I was understanding the metaphor. Right. So actually, let's back up a little bit with what exactly the Diversity Lounge is, because itself is fairly young. Was the first one at PAX East 2014? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. And what prompted its founding? I assume the initiative came from Robert Koo? Uh, It was Robert and I actually together. Um, I had the privilege of knowing and working with Robert actually from the queer geek work that I did, Um, because we're in Seattle there in Seattle, I, I actually like cold called Robert Koo basically and was just like, hey, I've got this float I'm doing in the Pride Parade. It has to do with gaming. You guys are a local gaming company. Do you want to just come march with us? You know, um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't asking him for money or like anything like that. It was just a hey, you're nerds. We're nerds. There's a gay pride parade. Do you want to come march with us? And he wrote back like very quickly and was like, we would love to. And a contingent of Penny Arcade staff came and marched with us in the parade and did the same thing again the next year. And so I happened to have a contact with him because of the work that I was doing with Queer Geek. And so when I saw some of the criticism that um, they had been facing, it it was I, I was in the unique position to go, hey, like. I happen to know that they're supportive and cool, but they're also facing some criticism and challenges in this area. So like, how can I help? How can I help that? You know, it was sort of like, Hey, I know they're down. I know they're cool, but other people don't necessarily know that. So what can I do to help other people realize that they are actually supportive of queer people? You know, um, And so I I approached Robert and said, hey, like, you know, I've been going to PAX for a long time and, you know, I love going to PAX. But at the same time, you know, like I was saying, there's that feeling sometimes of being like an outsider, being, you know, an imposter there. And I was like, what if we came up with a with something to let people know that, you know, that this is a place where everyone is welcome? And how can we really stress that? Because it's one of those things, like I said, everyone is welcome at PAX. And they have always been welcome at PAX. But sometimes, especially with community, like communities that has, have historically faced um, discrimination and oppression and uh, things like that, 
sometimes you have to, you know, you can't just be like, well, we're open to those people. They just have to step up and, you know, make themselves known. It's like, no, sometimes it's great if you can be the one to extend the hand and say, hey, you know, just so you know, we're here for you. And that's kind of what the Diversity Lounge is, is that it's a way for PACs to be like, hey, we acknowledge that you are a subset of the community that we serve and we support you and, you know, we're down and we want you to feel welcome here and we want your interests to get attention as well and to call attention to some of the bullshit you have to deal with, you know, and, and give you resources to deal with that. Which subsets of the PAX community is the Diversity Lounge aimed at? Uh, it is aimed at basically anyone who would fall under the label of diverse. So people of color, uh, queer people, trans people, women, unfortunately. Uh, and when I say unfortunately, what I mean is like, you know, even though women are a majority of the people on the planet, they basically are a minority when it comes to gaming. Um, although that is changing. Or they're at least a minority in the way that they are treated and represented in gaming. Um, so, like, so yeah, women, people of color, queer people, just, just basically anyone who isn't the standard target audience of your average AAA title. Like, you know, it, it's anyone who is underserved, basically, in the community. That's who we try and focus on. So as a straight, white, cisgendered male, what am I going to get out of the Diversity Lounge? You, sir, are going to get whatever you want out of the lounge. You can learn about uh, the challenges that other people are facing. You can learn about what you can do to help if you wish. Um, you can uh, you know, find out about things that you might not necessarily otherwise learn about just by walking the expo hall floor. You can, I mean, there's, you can get the same thing that everyone else gets out of it too. It's just a matter of whether or not you're interested. You said I might learn things in the diversity lounge I might not get from walking the show floor, but ideally, shouldn't I learn those things on the show floor as well? Well, the show floor and sort of the lounge space are, they sort of have two different goals. And is, is this a lead into asking why we don't have a presence on the show floor? <laughs> um, maybe that'll be a topic we address <laughs> because it's certainly a topic that has been a source of criticism of the lounge in the past so that's to get this out there up front i love the diversity lounge i've spent a lot of time there oh, my, no, my no, friends no, no. have spent time Sorry. there i i'm just i i can't help but you know try and think three questions ahead because <laughs> I, you know i work in diversity i work in diversity in my day job at the university of washington and i work in diversity in my in my um in my spare time in the community that I love, which is gaming. And when you do that work, uh, you get a lot of criticism from all corners. Um, so yeah, sorry, I can't help but try and think ahead like that. Well, also you're cheating because you have all my questions ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but you <laughs> with new ones, surprise, got you ones. No, I'm kidding. Oh, geez. no I, I'm, I'm totally kidding. So okay. what, I'm, here's the thing about, your question was, should you learn about these things on the floor? Yes, ideally you should, and in some cases you do. So, like, there are companies that are out there that that serve our communities. So, Bioware is the low-hanging fruit. Everyone knows that they're down, and, you know, they have a great representation in their media 
Um, they're part of EA, and EA is one of the only companies in the entire video game industry that actually has a team which is part of their corporate structure, which focuses on diversity both in their workforce and in the media that they that they create. So, I mean, that's easy, right? Um, I also would love to call out Bethesda, uh, or excuse me, not Bethesda, um, Behemoth. They both start with a B. Um, Behemoth, I think, is also really great and has even just gotten better with time as far as um, the way that they handle sort of the representations of different people in their media. So yes, there are opportunities to learn that on the floor, but also the floor is a, is a, a dark room full of flashing lights and shiny uh, like bubbles for you to wet your pants over. And so you might not notice the, you know, the sort of quirks of, you know, Hey, I just happened to notice that there are gay romance options in Dragon Age because you were so overwhelmed by the giant dragon that they were fighting on the demo screen. So it, you know, it's yes, you can learn that on the expo hall floor, but also you can learn it in the diversity lounge as well. You know what I mean? Because there certainly were some games on the show floor that would fit what I would consider to be the criteria of diversity lounge. There was one game called together, which was a puzzle game uh, featuring characters of color. Oh, sure. Yeah, so they're definitely out there. And and why would a developer, for example, choose to be on the show floor instead of the diversity lounge, or even vice versa? Well, to be clear, the diversity lounge is not necessarily for developers. I I have sort of always wanted to have some developers in the lounge. Like, my ideal would be if I could get EA to have a booth in the diversity lounge and have their space on the floor and have them sort of talking about it in both places, I think that would be great. But what is sort of played out um, due to just logistical considerations and, you know, cost uh, prohibitions and things like that is that mostly the people that we feature in the diversity lounge end up being community groups, um, other conventions like, Geek Girl Con and Gamer X that, you know, need a bit of a signal boost, maybe sort of smaller independent groups. Um, it, it's just turned out that developers aren't who we really feature um, in the lounge. And that could always change in the future, especially if it grows, um, which, you know, I'm all for, but I'm biased. It's, it, it's not about why would someone choose to be in the lounge versus on the floor? For me, it's always about, well, it's, it's and not, or, you know what I mean? Like, I think if a developer can, you know, spare a couple of people and, you know, I don't know, 500 to a thousand bucks in, in printing costs to create something to do a six foot table in the, in the lounge, there's no reason why they can't do both, you know? Um, And use the lounge as a place to, feature what they're doing to serve underserved populations in addition to what they do on the on the expo floor which is to just be like look at how awesome our game is don't you want to buy it you know uh and that's this that would be the same thing they're doing in the lounge is look at how awesome our game is don't you want to buy it but they're more they're basically doing a more targeted focus on which audience they're focusing on does that make sense yeah it does uh, yeah. So who are some of the tenants you've had in the Diversity Lounge? Off the top of my head, I can remember Take This, Last Kiss, Able Gamers. 
Um, so yes, able gamers are, are some of my favorite. I love having them around. Take this has been involved and they're really great and very important. Um, who else? Uh, the ladies Planeswalker society has been there. Geek girl con has been there. Press XY, which is a, a group that focuses on, uh, trans issues in gaming. They do great panels every year. If you see a press XY panel, uh, on the schedule, I highly recommend that you you go to it because their panels are always a blast. Um, it's it's sort of it, it changes per region. I also get a lot of regional groups, like for example at Prime, like the queer geek um, folks have been represented there. But then when we're at East, um, I get people. I have a group that comes down from Toronto, the Toronto Gamers, and that's gamers with a G A Y. Um, they come down and they have a table. When I was at PAX South, the Houston Gamers, which is the same thing, G-A-Y Gamers, they came over and like did a thing. So, you know, regional community groups get represented there. Um, who else? Um, man, some really great ones. I'm really excited because um, I have, oh man, I'm totally going to butcher his last name. Um, but I think it's Jeffrey Verge, who is a local Native American artist who his work has popped up on my Facebook feed so much. But he's the one that does like superheroes and video game characters, but in that sort of like Coast Salish Native art style. Have you seen those? No, I haven't. Oh, they're so they're great. They're super awesome. But I'm excited because he's going to be at Prime this year. Um, so he's really great. Um, yeah, so it, it's uh Anyone who I can get there, I love. I want to invite them, um, but those are sort of just a, a smattering of the different people that have been there. Do they necessarily need to be from the video game industry, or they, can they be other aspects of geekdom, like comic books? Oh, yeah, it, it's uh, sort of anything from geekdom. I'm going to sort of lean probably harder towards the video game stuff if if I'm lucky enough to... You know, have to pick and choose between who gets a spot. I'm going to lean more towards the video game stuff, but I've also I've also had just sort of general, general nerd stuff there. I mean, like Geek Girl Con, you know, they're not just a video game convention; they're just sort of general geek culture. But they're there. Um, Northwest Press, the queer comic book publishing company, has been there in the past. Um, yeah, so just anything from geek culture, because Lord knows if you've ever been to a convention, you know that even if you're at a video game convention, you're gonna you're going to find other parts of geek culture bleeding in and vice versa. I mean, video games are really like taking off at, at a uh, San Diego comic-con. Um, they, they have a lot of presence there now. So it all just sort of bleeds together in my opinion. So if I as the host of a podcast that is ostensibly about issues of equality and diversity in the gaming space, want to be in the diversity lounge, how would I go about applying for a table or a booth? There is a public application process. Robert Koo tweets about it. Uh, when the time comes, uh, so there's an application you fill out, and then we review all the applicants. And just like any other process at PAX, whether it be the panels that are selected or or so forth, we review and pick the ones that seem to be most worthy and, and select them. And unlike a panel where if I get selected, my responsibility is to speak, I assume to be in the diversity lounge, there's also uh, some other requirements, like I might have to pay a fee. Nope. It, uh, that's the thing is that another aspect of low income and not having a lot of financial resources is something that is usually goes hand in hand with underrepresented groups. So there is actually no fee to be uh, in lounge. We, we give the tables away for free 
and give away the space for free, which is something that I think is really, really cool of PAX because, like, you know, they certainly can make money off of every square inch of those convention centers, but they're donating the space to do the lounge. That's great to hear. I was wondering about that because I know some, not many, conventions in this industry may pay their speakers. PAX is on such a scale that I don't know if that's feasible, but it would certainly encourage individuals who come from marginalized communities who may not have a lot of social capital to be able to be represented and to speak. So I was wondering, how do you get them to come to the diversity lounge and being able to waive any sort of a fee that they might have to pay to be on the show floor is certainly uh, helping to level the playing field. Yeah, definitely. And that, and that is something that is very intentional. The diversity lounge has been at, let me see if I can count this up correctly. Has it been at PAX Australia? It has, um, although I have not directly been super involved in that one and that's just because i'm not from australia so i don't know the groups that are you know the important ones to be there they actually have someone else who works on the the pax australia one but it is at since pax east 2014 it has been at every pack since then so what are there five packs a year and we've already had um east 2015 so it's been at six packs by now i guess yeah, five or six. Um, yeah. And other than the Australian ones, have you been at all of them? Yes. So how would you, we, we we talked a little bit about the distinct flavor and audiences that each one has based on regional groups, but now that the diversity lounge has been around long enough that it can actually start iterating at specific locations. For example, having been at PAX East twice now, how mm-hmm. would you say that the room, the space, has grown or evolved? You know, it's it's only been one it's only been one year. Um, so I don't know if there's really been time to see an evolution path. Um, but one thing that I have seen just even from packs to packs is that we do occasionally get someone who, I mean, especially at the first packs, we got plenty of people who were super skeptical of what the space was going to be. And then they got there and they're like, Oh, Hey, it's actually pretty cool. Um, and anyone who had anything negative to say about it pretty much either didn't come to the lounge or they weren't in the lounge for longer than like literally 30 seconds. And as time has progressed, that has just sort of been a continuation where I see pretty much no one, uh, talking smack about the lounge. And I think that's because over, over time they've seen, oh, hey, all those fears that we had about what it was going to be, they're unfounded and they continue to be unfounded. And so, you know, there's, it's just, it's moving from sort of apprehension to acceptance and now into excitement. So like, like for Prime, I actually had to, this year, I unfortunately had to turn some people down. Um, Whereas before I was sort of, you know, like, scrounging around to try and find people who who would be up for participating i actually had to turn people down at prime because i just didn't have enough space that is a very good problem to have yeah yeah it was it was nice well not nice because i want to accept everyone of course (laughs) but yes nice problem to have well can't the diversity lounge get bigger so that it can accept everybody uh well i mean if you accept everyone then you know if you start down that path and we can have a whole I mean we can have a whole convention devoted to it which there already are you know with Geek Girl Con and GamerX so I think that as it regards to PAX sure more growth would be great but everyone wants to grow at PAX and these convention centers 
especially prime um it prime is just a nightmare for space like because the convention center there is just it's laid out weird and there's not a lot of space and they already have like all these other satellite locations to try and expand the space and they're sort of hitting capacity at how much space they can get so um growth i think for the lounge is going to be limited by that just like anyone else is going to be limited for growth at PAX for that sort of thing. Um, but I don't see any reason why we can't use that as sort of a an opportunity to find unique and clever ways to expand it. Rather than expanding it by its sheer footprint, how can we find ways to maybe partner with you know people on the expo hall floor or um, I don't know. I you know I haven't we haven't gotten quite there yet where it's a huge problem, but. I, I see it as an opportunity to find more impactful ways to be present rather than just increasing the footprint. You mentioned how a lot of the concerns people had about the diversity lounge seem to have petered off in the last few years. And it does seem to me, just in my superficial web browsing, maybe I'm not looking in the right places, that some of the most of the complaints or concerns about the diversity lounge first appeared when the Diversity Lounge was announced, when it was still just a concept, so late 2013. And there were some additional write-ups shortly after the first PAX E, so in April of 2014. They seem to have died off since then, and you talked about why that might be, but I'm wondering if some of those concerns were solely online. Have you, as far as you've seen in your time in the diversity lounge space seen any complaints or detractors or have any, has anybody come to you and said, this isn't the way it should be. Or I really don't like the way you're handling this. Oh, well I, I mean, I have a feedback system for the lounge um, because I like the most important thing when you're subvert, when, um, when you're serving such a diverse group of people is you need to listen and you need to be open to criticism and ideas. So I had a feedback system for the lounge at every single show and overwhelmingly like 90% of the feedback was positive. Now, maybe 50% of that positive feedback also had some constructive criticism in it or things that they wish they would see, but ultimately it was still positive feedback. Um, so, you know, there are definitely, there are definitely areas that, um, could use some work that I am actively working on, but um, you know what? I'm sorry. I've totally lost what the original question was. Help me out. Well, let's go with a different question. You mentioned some of the constructive criticism that you've received. Can you tell us what some of those might've been? Sure. Uh, the, the biggest one, which is one that I wholeheartedly agree with is getting more representation for people of color in the diversity lounge. Um, because while we're, we have great representation of women and queer people, um, and um, people who have disabilities or are differently abled, things like that, not a lot of people of color in the lounge. Um, and that ha is something that I would love to change. Uh, I have found it challenging just because there are a lot of groups that serve women and queer people and trans people and all of that. Not a lot of groups out there that specifically serve people of color in the gaming industry. There are some. Um, but like, they're just, they're just pretty, they're pretty thin on the ground. Um, and I would love to, yeah, I would love to include more of them, but 
it's uh, it's pretty slim pickings. So I'm not I'm not sure what the solution is for that. I'm definitely like I have actively gone out and tried to find them um, because I can't just sit and wait for them to come to me because that's you know that's lame. But even going out and trying to find them, I've had a lot of trouble finding them, and I would love to find more. So if if you're out there and you're listening to this and you are a group that serves people of color in gaming and you want to be in the lounge, please hit me up because I want you to be there. And how can they hit you up? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, Zeph's right on Twitter. That's um, the best way for, you know, public folk that I've never met to find me that way. Or you can email, um, or you can email the pa- any of the various PAX emails or hit up the PAX Twitter about it. And then that will eventually find its way to me as well. Great. I usually save the guests' contact info for the end of the show, but I definitely wanted to get it in there right away as an action item. Yeah, uh, duck. A call to action. There will be links to all that in the show notes. Uh, but the interview's not over, so don't mistake that. <laughs> One thing I'm curious is that in a prior interview on apgnation.com, you said that the Diversity Lounge is engineered to eventually go away. Uh, do you see the lounge trending in that direction, or PACs, or the industry? Actually, before we answer that question, can you say what you meant by it's engineered to eventually go away? Well, you know, it's sort of the it's the idea that any sort of service that you create to serve underserved individuals is that once they are no longer underserved, then there's no need for your services anymore, right? It's so it's one of those things where it's like if we get to the point where there's great representation of all different kinds of people in gaming and, you know, women and queer people, but women especially aren't, you know, being harassed and have, having their lives threatened and all that ridiculous bullshit um, all the time. And there's, you know, more people of color and women in the industry working. Like if we get to that point, then, then going out on the expo hall floor will be like being in a giant diversity lounge, you know? So if we get to that point, then the diversity lounge becomes redundant and there's probably some other group that is then sort of not getting in the spotlight and maybe there's a different way to serve them. I don't know, but it, it, you know, it's that idea is that the diversity lounge is targeting underserved individuals. And if you actually serve them, fully then there's no there's no need for a diversity lounge anymore you know what i mean it's sort of like how most nonprofits are in the business of putting themselves out of business for example i volunteer with the national multiple sclerosis society and the day that we find a cure for ms and nobody has it anymore that organization can shut down exactly that that is exactly the idea now uh unlike unlike a medical problem where there might actually be a cure um i think i think human history has shown that there is always going to be some population that is going to be uh, oppressed and underserved, unfortunately. So who knows? Maybe there is no way to uh, to engineer the diversity lounge so it doesn't exist because there's always going to be, you know, an underserved population. But I think that you still have to work towards the ideal, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the only direction you can go. Right. So do you see your? Do you see the diversity lounge and the industry it inhabits trending in that direction? Is that where we're headed? It's tough because I want to speak out of both sides of my mouth when I answer that and say yes and no. Um, I see great progress in the industry. Um, I see 
just the fact that the conversations are happening about this sort of stuff so consistently, I think is a sign of progress. Um, but at the same time, like there's a lot of crap that is just still happening. And, um, the fact that we have stuff like Gamergate happen, it's just like, I think that is a sign that like, while we're still making progress, there's still a hell of a long way to go. Um, and it's, so yeah, I mean, I'm seeing progress, but I guess, I guess looking over the course of that progress, I'm not, I haven't seen the light at the end of the tunnel yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gamergate has been very discouraging, but on the same token, a lot of good has come of it unintentionally. For example, there has been a proliferation in the last year and a half of podcasts like this one. Uh, Polygamer was founded just a month before Gamergate, but there are so many more now, and all these podcasters are reaching out to each other, collaborating. There are examples of that in other realms, like developers and fan communities, but the one I can speak to is podcasters, where we're identifying each other and we're connecting, and that might not have happened had we not come under attack. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. It's one of those things where anytime you have you know, groups like that, that, you know, attack minority populations is that it's always going to create a backlash. So there is going to be positive that comes out of it. But it's one of those things where it's like, at what cost, you know, I don't ever want to acknowledge it in a way that it makes it sound like that it was necessary for that to happen in order for the progress to happen, because it wasn't, it just absolutely wasn't and isn't. Um, so, so yes, I agree with you. Uh, good things have come out of it. Um, but I still wish that it had never happened because I think those good things could have and would have happened anyway, given the time. Absolutely. When I interview people about multiple sclerosis, and I used to do a podcast that did just that, they would always focus on the good that came out of their diagnosis. Like they learned what's really important in their lives, or they got so much support from their family and they found out who really matters to them and vice versa. But not any one of them is ever glad they got diagnosed. Right. You know, same thing with Gamergate. Some good may have come of it, but that doesn't justify what happened. Well, and there's a lot of bad that has come out of it, and I and I mean more than just the obvious sort of crap that came from it. There is, um, I mean, I I can speak to this personally. Like, I was actually, um, I had a lot of people, including people in the gaming industry, who I respect, who were encouraging me to start a consulting company specifically to geared towards diversity in the industry, um, sort of a la, you know, kind of like the work that James Portnow does, but specifically focusing on, on diversity. And I was all set to do it. And then Gamergate happened and I realized, I was like, you know what? Like, I will never make enough money to do doing this that will make dealing with that kind of bullshit in my personal life worth it. Like, I will never make enough money to make death threats and doxing worth it. And so I ended up passing on it. And so I, I think that there are a bunch of other things like that that happen as a result of things like this that really do set the timetable back. And it's it's really it can be very discouraging, even while even while you can point to the really positive things that may have come out of it. I think it's important to acknowledge the sort of the setbacks that it creates as well, because then it otherwise it's. Um, I don't know. It's almost sort of like trying to ignore the reality of it. You know what I mean? Wow, I didn't know that. I'm really sorry you missed out on that opportunity. But, you know, it's not a matter of missing out on the opportunity. I made the choice. I could have said, I could have said fuck them and just done it anyway. But that w you would not have been happy long term. Well, I mean, who knows? I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dude, so 
maybe they never would have actually touched me. Sort of like they don't really do anything to Chris Cluey. You know, it's 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 mostly women that they target. So who knows? Maybe I would have been fine. But, you know, as a queer man at, with a family um, who has nothing to do with the gaming industry, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, it's like this just isn't worth it. You know what I mean? Right. You calculated the risks and after Gamergate, they were too high. Yeah. Or just or just not worth it. You know, yeah. it's just like I can I can still I can still work towards good and positive change in the industry while also sort of keeping my keeping relatively under the radar. Um, but yeah, if I was going to, if I was going to my entire professional, like life and time to it, that would not, that's not under the radar. <laughs> no, certainly not. Volunteering to work on the diversity lounge and making my whole like professional career about changing the industry are two, are two very different things. <laughs> yes, I can, I can definitely appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, I have one more question about the engineered to go away aspect of the diversity lounge. Sure. You said that human nature suggests that, unfortunately, that day may never come. But since that is the ideal and the goal, the MS Society, for example, has a cure, and that's the metric by which they are measuring their success. That's what By what metric will the Diversity Lounge judge its success? How will you know when it's no longer needed? Or how do you even know that it's doing its job? All you have to do is just sort of like look at the lounge during any day of PAX, know it's doing its job. There are people in there. It's crowded. It's packed. Uh, people are ha- are in there having a good time, meeting each other, having important conversations about like things that matter to them in the industry. And that's its that's its only goal is to sort of in the in the same way that my goal with Queer Geek was to raise visibility and have that visibility be the catalyst for change in in the diversity lounge. If there are people coming into the lounge and engaging in the dialogues that need to happen around diversity, like goal met, you know, mission successful. Um, and then if you if you really want to try and measure success, then I could I'd say like just keep an eye on the expo hall floor and see like look at what sort of media representations are happening there. And if those start to change in a meaningful way, then, I mean, and and not to suggest that the diversity lounge is the, is the only thing that would cause that. There are many, many things that would, that would lead to that. But as far as looking for the sign that it's no longer necessary, looking for the change in media representations on the expo hall floor, like looking for, you know, a, a lack of, articles about people having all these terrible experiences working in the industry or being or reporting on the industry um, or attending conventions like those are the things that would would tell us that that the mission that we're working towards is is being accomplished excellent very good so here's the question we've all been dreading pax is considered by some to be a problematic franchise of conventions due to certain behaviors of the founders and Elizabeth Sampat, for example, wrote an impassioned plea, which may or may not be outdated, having been written two years ago, about reasons to not go to PAX. Right. And, and she even addresses the issue of the only way to fix PAX is from the inside. Uh, so for people who still find PAX to be problematic, how do you either encourage them to go or justify what you're doing? It's, it's weird because I never want to say that 
I don't feel like I have to justify what I'm doing because what I'm doing is working towards positive change. And if you need me to justify that, then I need you to re-examine what your problem is. If it's, but to, to put a, a less sort of confrontational tone on it, for me, like I said, it's always about and not or. Like people who say, well, don't go to PACs because it's problematic. And it's just like, well, why can't I go to PAX and try and change it from within and go to, you know, GeekGirlCon and GamerX and things like that? And, and, you know, it's it's interesting because it's the exact same question, I feel like, that we got at GamerX when, when we first started that, um, like when we first launched the Kickstarter and we were getting a lot of media attention for the first convention. Uh, the biggest question we got, which was more from, you know, the, the, the straight white dudes of the world was, you know, like, why you got to have your own convention? And it's, you know, it's just like, it's like, because we want to fuck off, you know? And it's, it's, it's this idea that, you know, well, you can, o- there are only so many things that one can do in the world. And there are only so, so many places that you can go. And it's like, no, I can do all of them. Like really, if I want to go to GamerX and go to Geek Girl Con and go to PAX and go to San Diego Comic Con and go to Dragon Con, like assuming I have the time and money, I can do all of those things. You know, it's doing one does not preclude doing the other. I think, especially with something like PAX, like any calls for boycotting it are. You know, if people feel like they don't want to be at PAX, if they don't if they don't want to be there, if they don't feel like it's a good place for them, then, you know, I respect that. But I reject any attempt to discourage anyone from being there and also, you know, being there and making positive change there. So it, it's about doing both. It's not about not going to PAX because there are issues that may or may not be there. It's about acknowledging that there may be issues and then going there and, you know, working towards fixing them. PAX is really a very interesting place. Um, and it's, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get all googly eyed about it and say it's magical and like, you know, things like that. But it's like, it kind of is, um, you know, especially, especially when I first started attending, it was it opened my eyes to a community that I had always sort of wanted to be a part of or always was a part of, but didn't know it. You know, it was, it was that idea of like, well, I always knew that I, I was a gamer, but I never knew that it was possible to seek out other gamers to create a community with and going to PAX opened my eyes to that possibility. And now having been to PAX for so many years, there are people who I like the only time of year I get to see them is at PAX and I love them dearly. And they're amazing people like Mike, uh, Mark and Craig from uh, able gamers. I love them to pieces, but I only ever see them at PAX because we're all just so busy and live so far apart from each other. Um, And Craig also from able gamers, who's a just beautiful human being. Um, It's, uh, it's just, I, 
I'm rambling because I, I feel so strongly about this is that like there is such a quality to PAX and such a a goodness that is possible there that saying that people shouldn't go, I, I just I have to reject it. It's just like, you know what, if you don't want to go, I respect that and I'm not going to judge you for it. But don't tell other people, especially people who are working to make it a better place, don't tell them they can't go or that they shouldn't go or judge them for doing that because, you know, that's just not cool. Sure. I have friends who don't go to PAX and I don't give them shit for it. And they know that I go to PAX and even speak there and they don't give me shit for it. Right. I don't know if that's agreeing to disagree, but it seems like an equitable solution. Well, actually, so let me let me sort of pull up a metaphor for this, right? I think that saying like, don't go to PAX because it sucks is kind of similar to being like, well, don't, don't even bother voting because government is corrupt. You know, it's just like, well, it's like, yes, but if you don't vote, like you're going to get screwed even more, you know, or at least, or at least you have some, like some say, you know, instead of zero say it's about engaging in the process, you know, it's like engaging in the process of community building or engaging in the process of politics. It's just like, if you if you refuse to engage and you just you know do whatever, well then don't come crying when it's terrible. Like and if you don't and if it and if it you know sucks because you didn't put in any work to help not help make it different. Now, granted, I understand that there's a financial component to it where you know people pay to go to PAX and that money supports the you know penny arcade corporation and there's you know you can say well you're voting with your dollars so on and so on but i mean i think that pax is so much bigger than you know than pen pax is bigger than penny arcade and pax is even bigger than pax you know i think that if like a bomb fell on the penny arcade offices and they no cease to exist god forbid that the people who go to PAX, like I almost feel like PAX would live on. I mean, it would change certainly, but it's just like, but that desire to be with other people who you feel a kinship with, like that is what PAX is most like. And I feel like that the structure around it is almost incidental. Um, but that's that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, and that arrangement is not without precedent. Every year for the last 18 years, I've been going to a convention that 25 years ago, the organizers were a company that went out of business, and the attendees loved it so much that they took over, and they've been running it for the last quarter of a century. Right. You know, So that can absolutely happen. And I think I've even heard the founders of Penny Arcade say that they want to get to the point where PAX no longer stands for Penny Arcade Expo, it stands for PAX. And I've seen them scaling back on their individual presences. There are fewer yes. Q&As and the like. Yes. And, and that's why I say, like, you can, you can go to PAX and, like, go the entire show and never even see anything having to do with Penny Arcade. Never see Mike Jerry, never see, like, any other PAX employees, or, excuse me, Penny Arcade employees... Um, is the only thing that absolutely happens is that if you pay for a ticket to go to PAX, that money goes to the Penny Arcade Corporation. But I mean, it's just like it, PAX is so big now that it's, I don't want to say that it's impossible to boycott against it because sure, if, you, if there were a big enough movement, 
like you could boycott against it, but as it as it stands right now, a very small minority of people like saying, "Well, I'm not going to PAX." We're like, "Okay, well, there's a line of tens of thousands of people waiting to take your place," and so, you know, while I respect that decision, if you don't want to be there, like you're also not doing anything to enact change by doing that, really, in my opinion. But at the same time, just because an opinion is unpopular doesn't mean it's wrong. Oh, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that. No worries. I think that's a... Uh, I think I may be transferring a bit because that's an opinion I hear a lot from my father. <laughs> it's something that always... Tell me about your childhood. Like, <laughs> So, sorry, maybe projecting a bit. No, 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 you're fine, you're fine. Well, And, and also, I want to be clear that, like... I just want people to get along. You know what I mean? Like people are so impassioned um, and people have so many opinions and their, and their opinions are very dear to them. And I respect that, but I, I wish people would just be a lot more respectful to each other in general, like all around. And, and I apply that to every single person, like even, even my own community, even underrepresented people. It's like, it's just like, I just want there to be compassion, you know, for, for all people, because, um, you know, without, without diving way too much into my own personal life or personal philosophies, it's just like, it's like, look, everyone has something that they are fighting. Everyone has something that they're suffering against. And I'm not here to win the oppression Olympics and say that my suffering is greater. I'm just here to try and alleviate suffering and to, and to make people happy and to improve people's lives. And so I'm not, if other people think that I'm not doing that in a way that is the way that they would do it, that's fine. I invite them to do it in the way that they think is best. And maybe we can all work together and like really make something awesome. No, I think that's a wonderful philosophy and we all have different ways to go about it. But in the end, most of us are working toward the same goal. Yeah. Yeah. Even if we fight about it the whole way. (laughs) So, Benjamin, before we sign off, there's one more topic I want to talk to you about, and it's a complex enough one that we could do an entire show about it, so this is just going to be a superficial overview, but it's a term I first came across in the PAXI 2014 panel you were on, Creating Diversity Playgroups, and that is the term white knighting. And even in that panel, you brought up and said, we're not going to talk about that here because it's such a big topic. And I thought I noted a tone of derision. And so I thought white knighting was a bad thing. But now in the past year, especially when I did a Paxi's panel about fixing gender inequality in gaming, I started to hear that maybe it's a term that's been misinterpreted. So could you give us a brief primer on what white knighting is? Sure. Although the, the very topic requires me to say that it's almost not my place to say exactly what white knighting is. Because the whole point of white knighting is uh, people from a non-oppressed group coming in and fighting the fights of the oppressed groups on their behalf. Um, you know, so for example, men speaking for women about the challenges that women face. That's that's white knighting, you know, and I think that if there was any uh, amount of derision that you detected in my tone when I was like, oh, my God, can we please not talk about that right now? Is that that is sort of an argument similar to what I was just talking about, where it's like, I think that when we talk about these challenging subjects that people easily get get hurt you know they easily get their feelings hurt and so when i see people sort of attacking other people 
who are trying to help them, it makes me it makes me sad because it's just like they're trying to help you and you just drove them away. And, you know, maybe that's what you want and maybe you want to fight your own fights and you don't want anyone else to say anything for you. But I feel like it's a lost opportunity to create an ally and to strengthen, you know, your position and to, and to increase the likelihood that the fight that you're fighting will be successful. So in a previous episode of Polygamer, I spoke to competitive esports gamer Lil Chen, and one of the topics we spoke about was benevolent sexism, where a guy thinks he might be doing something good for a woman, but he's actually treating her as inferior because she is a woman. So he could be perceived as a potential ally because his intentions might be in the right place, but the way he's going about it is completely wrong. Okay. Should we be trying to make allies of these individuals? Is that what you mean by not you know, turning away these white knights? With the caveat that I didn't listen to that podcast, and so I may not be correctly speaking directly to what she was talking about, absolutely, I think that you should try and make allies of those people. Anyone who sort of like comes at you with goodwill and good intention, but with a amount of ignorance or lack of knowledge, the only difference between them being an ally and them being, you know, no one is just that lack of knowledge. They have the goodwill. They have the good intention. They just don't have the experience or the knowledge to do the best thing possible with that goodwill and good intention. You know what I mean? Um, it's sort of like, it's like, yes, someone, someone who someone can want to address something that is sexist and in the process of addressing, they themselves do something sexist, but at least they're aware that sexism exists and they want to change it. You know, that's like saying that, um, it's like saying that, you know, white people can't advocate for like black lives matter. It's like we absolutely can, and we absolutely should. But at the same time, like you, you have to recognize that, you know, like, like the Avenue Q song says, everyone's a little bit racist, (laughs) you know? And so you can advocate against racism, but you also have to recognize that you've also probably got some racism in you. And the same thing goes for, you know, misogyny and homophobia and everything is that like when a man is, you know, trying to, you know, help a woman and then, and then while trying to help her says something that's totally misogynistic, it's like, well, yeah, it's because everyone's probably a little bit misogynistic in some ways, like, but at least he had the good intention. And if you just, if you have the patience and the ability to take the time and educate, then rather than, you know, get angry at them for not, you know, already knowing what they're supposed to do, then you take someone who could have been an ally and instead you, or rather it's like you make someone an ally who instead might even become like, like, unfortunately could be an enemy, you know, like if you, if someone wants to help you and then you, you know, spit in their face and say, fuck you, you didn't do it right. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that if that happens enough to some people that, you know, they're going to be like, well, then fuck you. Like, I'm not going to help you anyway. And in fact, maybe you don't deserve help because like you're being an asshole, you know? Um, And that happens in, and it's not just with like women and men. It's like that happens in communities all over the place. 
It happens in different ethnic group communities as they advocate for their things. It happens in the queer community. I think it especially happens amongst like um, the trans communities and the gay community a lot lately. That's that sort of thing has been happening. So it's I I am always an advocate of like I said I'm always an advocate of more of and not or. It's just like if someone has good intention and they want to help you, but they're doing it the wrong way, then just like if you can take the time to educate them or direct them to the information that they're lacking and don't get mad at them. Like I know it's exhausting uh, when I know it's exhausting and I know it takes a lot of effort and, but like, I think that's the best thing to do personally. I absolutely agree with not getting angry with them. That's something Keisha Howard and I talked about on this podcast a year ago. But as far as taking the time to educate them, that sort of puts the onus on the marginalized group to become an educator. And that isn't always their responsibility, and they don't always have the time for that. I don't want to go so far as to say that they do have the responsibility. But what I will say is that if 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 the marginalized group who is experiencing discrimination doesn't isn't the one to educate them, well, then who is going to do it? You know, uh, like, like with queer things, like, yeah, it's like, if someone's like, Oh, well, who's the man and who's the woman in your relationship? It's just like, yeah, that's really annoying. And it takes, and it's just like, Oh, I have to explain this again, you know, and it's frustrating and it takes energy out of you. But at the same time, like, how easy is it to just stop and just go, Hey, like, I don't know if you know, but that thing that you just said, like, it made me uncomfortable. Like, let me tell you why, you know, and, and just take that moment and educate. And it's not that it, there's responsibility, but it's like, if it's not us, then who, you know, if a, if a queer person doesn't take that moment to educate the non-queer person, who am I going to rely on? Some other straight person to educate them? That's not their responsibility either. I think that it is very worth acknowledging the effort and the exhaustion and just the sort of like weight of having that, that responsibility of educating on your shoulders. That is absolutely worth acknowledging. But I think that just because it's difficult doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. So how does this tie back in to the topic we spent the last hour discussing, which is the diversity lounge? Well, I think it has to do with most of the criticism that, I got when the diversity lounge was first announced was not from like the straight white guys and the gamer gators. Although there was, there was some derision from them, but the, the loudest and most vitriolic responses I got were from people who I would have considered my own allies, you know, like, like feminists and like queer people and like people who agree with me that, there needs to be this change. They were the loudest ones saying like, you're doing it wrong, you know? And so it's one of those things where it's like, I wish there was less time being angry at each other for disagreeing with tactics and ideas about how to do it. And more time having sort of like meaningful dialogue amongst each other and building allyship across lines. Excellent. Well, thank you for that brief primer into White Nighty. I appreciate it. <laughs> like, like I said, huge disclaimer, like very brief. It needs so much more. Please do not take what I just said as canon because it's not. It's so brief. Right, right. Like I said, we. I would love to have somebody come on the show and talk about just White Nighting for a whole hour. And that would still yeah. probably just be scratching the surface. Yes. 
Uh, but at least for me, since you were the person who I first heard the term from, I wanted to go back to my own point of origin and get it right from the horse's mouth. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, just any any sort of derision was not because of like that there's not valid sort of concern there and that it isn't sort of like ever a bad thing. But I always see it more as, as an opportunity rather than a place to criticize. Oh, and one more thing I haven't acknowledged on this podcast, which is that you were the one who put me in touch with Tifa, who appeared on my panel at PAX East last year about gender equality in gaming. Oh, yeah. And it was her encouragement that prompted me to launch this podcast. So indirectly, if it weren't oh, for really? you, we might oh. not be having this discussion. <laughs> well, cool. I'm glad. Yeah, so am I. Thank you so much for making that connection. Yeah, definitely. And see, like I said, it's it's like, yes, like... uh I, th- I think you said earlier you are a straight white cisgendered guy, but that doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, very strong feelings about injustice and inequality and want to spend your time addressing those changes. And I will be the last person to try and discourage you from doing so. Thank you. Even though sometimes my demographic does leave me leave me walking on eggshells, wondering if I'm qualified to speak about this these things. That's why in these interviews, I tend to let the guests do most of the talking. Well, that's fine. And if you're ever unsure, then just ask questions. Which is what I made this podcast for. Is a safe, <laughs> it's a safe space for me. We were talking about safe spaces, how they're intended for specific demographics. The safe space that this podcast was originally intended for was a person of one, and that's me. <laughs> Well, I I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Of course, and I hope it's a safe space for my guests as well, and I hope you don't feel discriminated against, at least in the the past hour. Um, I'm so offended. I never want to speak to you ever again. Wonderful. I've done my job then. (laughs) So, Benjamin, one more time, let us know where we can find you personally on Twitter, on the webs, anywhere you like. Um, easiest place to find me, uh, if you need to get a hold of me, is on Twitter at Zephsright, which is Z E P H S R I G H T. Or if you need to get a hold of me about the Diversity Lounge at PAX, uh, you can just uh, email, I think it's just PAX at PAXSite.com, and uh, anything about the Diversity Lounge eventually makes its way to me. And what about Queer Geek? Uh, Queer Geek, uh, you can find us at QueerGeek.org. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Benjamin. I totally appreciate your time. Definitely. No problem. Thank you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Wrong camera. Uh, actually, we don't need any camera. We don't need any camera? No, okay. Audio only. Well, fine then. Just just be there in your boxers and like be selfish about it. No. How'd you know? Well, well I mean, straight guys, right?